Hi all, I can't believe it's finally happening, but heads up that Crimes of the Centuries is a book as of January 16th, 2024, just days away. I think you can tell that I love delving into these cases, so I not only took a deeper look at a couple dozen of them, but I also structured the book thematically so you can more easily follow how society and the law change from one crime to the next. I even uncovered some new tidbits about cases that haven't been reported anywhere else. Seriously, I got a tip and it panned out. Sometimes things just happen as they should, you know? Crimes of the Centuries, The Cases That Changed Us is available for pre-sale now at all major online retailers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and such. Or you can ask your local bookseller to stock it. Or you can go to our website, centuriespod.com slash book. Lots of ways to order it. I'm very proud of it and I hope you like it too. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Patrons looked up as the frantic man ran, screaming into Henry's bar. It was a Wednesday around 6.30 p.m., and residents of the Long Island town were enjoying a drink after work. The man burst through the door, his words sending chills through the bar. You gotta help me, I think my mother and father are shot, he screamed. One patron, a friend of the young man's, jumped off his bar stool and rushed over. Are you sure they're not asleep, he asked. Insistent, the distraught man demanded that people accompany him back to his house to prove his claim. Podcaster Daisy Egan. So all the dudes from the bar run over to the house and indeed find every member of Ronald Jr.'s family dead in their beds, either face down or lying on their sides, apparently shot to death. Reeling back, the group met on the main floor of the house. One even went to call 911, which arguably is what Ronald DeFeo Jr. should have immediately done, rather than run to a nearby bar. The rest of the people at the scene comforted Butch, as he was nicknamed, certainly sensing that this terrible tragedy would forever change the town of Amityville, New York, though they couldn't have foreseen precisely how. First came the investigation and the headlines, followed by a grisly trial. Those parts were predictable. But then came the horror novel, the blockbuster film, the documentaries, another film, and more. Soon, Amityville would become shorthand for evil, catapulting into fame a pair of supposedly supernatural investigators whose questionable adventures still inspire films to this day. But at the heart of it all were six members of the DeFeo family who met a terrifying end. Now, the truth is, it's tough to tell this story because the initial investigation was shoddy, meaning that there's a lot less evidence than I would like. Some insist on story A, while others swear it was story B. And then if you get into the really 
interesting parts of the internet, you might find that one person who believes in Story Z. The goal of this episode is to try to sift through the noise and find the history, not the Hollywood legend, while also explaining why this particular case helped spawn such a supernatural and enduring legend to begin with. And we'll be doing that in part with Daisy Egan, my friend and fellow Obsessed Network host, who researched this case for her podcast, Strange and Unexplained. We thought it might be an interesting case for an overlap, because while her focus was mostly on the supposedly supernatural elements of the case, ours will be more squarely on the criminal elements, including possible mafia connections, which began with a family slaughter and evolved into a wild tale best known today as the Amityville Horror. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was born in 1930, and his future wife, Louise Brigante, was born a year later. Her family didn't approve of the courtship, and definitely not the marriage, so much so that Louise's parents didn't speak to them for a few years. Not until 1951, when Ronald Jr. was born. As a child, Ronald Jr., called Butch to more cleanly differentiate him from his father, was noticeably overweight and he was bullied both at school and at home. One maternal uncle would eventually testify as such. Michael Brigante Jr. testifies that Ronald Sr. had been abusive, particularly toward Ronald Jr., that Ronald Jr. got the brunt of his father's abuse. Michael Brigante Jr. recounted one story when Butch was just two years old. He said he and others were in the DeFeo's basement watching TV when the toddler did something that upset Ronald Sr., who, quote, just pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something, end quote. Now, it's hard in hindsight to know how frequent or even severe this abuse was, in part because, as Daisy explained in this era, corporal punishment was generally seen as, like, an acceptable way to discipline children. Still, even for the time period, whatever Ron Sr. did to his son stood out to his Uncle Michael enough that he would later testify on Butch's behalf about the treatment. Anyway, Butch remained overweight as a child, dropping the pounds only when he began using amphetamines as a teenager. Before the birth of their fifth and final child, the DeFeo couple bought the infamous house at 112 Ocean Avenue in 1964 for their growing family. The house was, and is, beautiful. A 4,000-square-foot Dutch colonial with two stories, a, quote, big attic that served as a third floor, a finished basement, a heated in-ground pool, a sun porch, end quote, and even a boathouse on the river. The price tag, estimated to be at least $50,000, which translates to about $488,000 in today's money, was paid for by Louise's father, Michael Brigante Sr., by the time the family moved in, Ron Sr. and Louise already had four children, 13-year-old Butch, 8-year-old Don, 3-year-old Allison, and 2-year-old Mark. Their last child, John, was born after the family moved into the home. Butch, as the oldest child, got his own room while his siblings shared, according to the Jackie Barrett book, The Devil I Know, My Haunting Journey with Ronnie DeFeo and the True Story of the Amityville Murders. His family settled, Ron Sr. put up an optimistic sign on the front lawn reading, High Hopes, but those hopes would be dashed the next decade. 
After moving into the upper-class home, Ron DeFeo Sr. immediately wanted-slash-needed to redecorate the house, according to a later interview with Butch's ex-wife, who talked to author Rick Osuna. Calling Ron's taste gaudy, Geraldine said Ron Sr. routinely spent big bucks on renovations and was quick to account the expenses to others as a way to build himself up. Now, his money supposedly came from an auto shop owned by his wife's family, which employed him and also Butch when he came of age, it's worth noting. Louise's father, Michael Brigante Sr., owned Brigante Carl Buick, located in the heart of Brooklyn. And there were rumors that business wasn't always on the up and up. Any police officer who came into the dealership received a discount. A 1963 column called Policing the Finest in the Brooklyn Daily included a small note that Big Ronnie, that's Ronnie Sr., who worked with his father-in-law at the dealership, had given the columnist a folder containing his proposal that all NYPD officers should obviously have new 1963 Buick police cruisers. And it was rumored around the neighborhood that the Carl in the business name was actually infamous mob boss Carlo Gambino. The book The Night the DeFeos Died included allegations that Carlo Gambino and Brigante ran in the same crowd as young men. When they were older, Brigante made it a point to celebrate each Thanksgiving with the Gambinos. Evidence of this connection is also included in the book Racket Squad by former Brooklyn DA John Christopher Fine. A member of the Racket Squad, the team tasked with investigating the mafia, Fine wrote how Carlo Gambino posed as a legitimate businessman, sometimes posing as a, quote, car salesman for a Brooklyn Buick dealership, end quote. Which also claimed the dealership was a front for the mob, listing money laundering and evidence disposal as a few of its duties. As in, supposedly the dealership had a melting pot within it to get rid of hot weapons and possibly even dead bodies. Anyway, Butch's ex Geraldine was often forced to drive into Brooklyn from Amityville to pick Butch up from the dealership. He would drive into work with Big Ronnie and find himself stranded when his father would sleep in the city. In her interview with Osuna, Geraldine mentioned having to wait around for Butch one day and noticing an ice truck making a delivery. Wondering why a Buick dealership needed blocks of ice, she walked over to the storeroom where the ice was being offloaded. As she got closer, she said she noticed a stench emanating from the room. Brigante told her to forget about it, but Butch told her later that there were a couple of corpses in there and the ice was for them. See, he explained, his maternal family had ties to a couple of crime families, the aforementioned Gambinos, and also the Genovese clan. In fact, that was why the maternal side was so put off by Louise's marriage to Ron Sr. They considered Big Ronnie a wannabe gangster, someone too low on the criminal totem pole to be worthy of their lovely daughter. Whatever the case, Louise's family made sure she was well cared for. For example, when she ran out of perfume, she called her father at work, and within a few hours, a case of either Chanel or Shalimar would be delivered to her. Or, quote, if she was out of meat, her father would send over half a cow, end quote. Even Big Ronnie's father, Rocco, would leave Louise $50 under a coffee cup when he came to visit. According to Geraldine, she thought it was Rocco's way of saying he was grateful to her for putting up with his son. Big Ronnie was not a subtle guy when it came to his money, 
By the early 1970s, for example, in addition to the family's huge, newly redecorated house, they also had life-size portraits of the entire family that cost between $50,000 and $75,000 total. The way the family members are presented in the paintings seemed telling of their personalities and maybe the family dynamic as a whole. The two daughters, Allison and Dawn, are shown sitting on a sofa with a book open between them. In a separate image, Mark sits with one arm around his brother John while holding a toy dog in his other hand. Louise insisted her father be included, painted in a black suit and tie, which gave the viewers the sense that he was the patriarch of the family and not Big Ronnie. Butch and Big Ronnie were painted together in the most casual setting of the series. Both were wearing more casual clothing, shirts unbuttoned at the top, and Big Ronnie was pouring Butch a drink. If you look closely, you get the sense that Big Ronnie maybe had one too many of those drinks already. That juxtaposed with the ethereal quality of Louise's painting, in which she was dressed in red and dripping in jewels, apparently convinced Big Ronnie that his wife was having an affair with the artist. In response to this suspicion, Big Ronnie installed red phones throughout the house, so Louise never had an excuse not to pick up a phone when he randomly called her to keep tabs. In short, this was by no means a picture-perfect family, even to outsiders. Before that fateful night, the DeFeos weren't exactly a happy household, with rumors of Ronald Sr. being hostile, abusive, overbearing, and dominant. This is from a BuzzFeed documentary. Butch eventually became addicted to drugs and alcohol, which led him to become violent towards his family. An incident had occurred where he reportedly pulled a gun on his father, and there were other times where he would physically lash out at his family. Butch described his childhood by saying that everyone was a target. Quote, nobody could control my father, end quote. This sentiment was supported by several people who ultimately testified in Butch's defense. One family friend said he was a dinner guest when he saw Big Ronnie straight up punch Louise, knocking her down some stairs. On another occasion, Butch supposedly tried to protect his mother from his father's abuse, only to have Louise hit him, as in hit Butch, over the head with an empty champagne bottle for quote-unquote interfering in his parents' affairs. In hindsight, all of this certainly sounds ominous. In the months leading up to the slaughter, author Rick Asuna said that Butch had started detesting his mother for what he perceived as her weakness, because he felt like Louise had the power to end her husband's abuse with one phone call to her father, the tough guy mobster. But Louise never called her father, possibly because she was worried about the damage Big Ronnie could do given his job at the Buick dealership. In short, he knew things. He wasn't kept around for his business prowess. Apparently, Big Ronnie would literally fill notepads with the phrase, fuck you, and hand them to his father-in-law and boss. Plus, he embezzled from the dealership, which, reminder, was supposedly in business with the mafia. If this all seems like a messy backdrop to the story, that's because it was. And to add to the messiness, by the way, Big Ronnie apparently also believed that he had psychic powers. According to Rick Asuna, the elder Ron would constantly tell people close to him that his premonitions led him to believe that they were in danger. He also forced Butch and his friend to build him religious shrines in both the front and backyards of 112 Ocean Avenue, and neighbors reported seeing Big Ronnie praying to the shrines at all hours. 
Butch wasn't the only family member fed up with his father's antics. Apparently Dawn DeFeo, one of his sisters, had also grown weary of her home life and started rebelling. While her family wanted to force her to attend the Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School in a nearby town, 18-year-old Dawn had plans to move to Florida to be with a guy. This was, of course, a no-go for her parents, who thwarted her attempts to tag along with a friend to Florida to fulfill her plan. Dawn was so upset by this interference that she supposedly asked Geraldine, Butch's then-wife, to change the words to a popular song called The Night Chicago Died by Paper Lace. Dawn's new version was called The Night the DeFeos Died, and her new lyrics replaced mobster Al Capone with her brother Butch and included the line, quote, I heard my mama cry, I heard her scream, Big Ronnie, we're going to die, end quote. Rick Osuna, who borrowed Dawn's parody song for the title of his book, called the tune another neglected warning sign of an impending tragedy. By the summer of 1974, the DeFeo family was in shambles. Two children even had murder on the brain. Butch, by this point married to Geraldine, with whom he had three daughters, would later say that his sister, Dawn, started harassing him to kill Big Ronnie. According to Butch, quote, I was tired of being constantly called back from my home in New Jersey to intercede in my family's battles, end quote. Geraldine added that Butch repeatedly said he wished his family would just move far away and get the hell out of his life already. But then Butch was summoned once again back to his parents' home. Supposedly, Big Ronnie had begun abusing Mark and John, the two youngest children, causing Mark to become angry and bitter. Geraldine said she answered the phone on November 12, 1974, to hear her mother-in-law's voice for the first time in months. She insisted that her son call her as soon as he got home from work. When Butch called, his mother told him that Dawn had tried to stab their father with a butcher knife and that Butch needed to get home right away to keep the peace. Furious, Geraldine watched as her husband changed his clothes and grabbed a piece of chicken she'd made for dinner before walking back out to the car to drive the 90 miles to Amityville. This was the night that Butch ended up running into that local bar, returning home with patrons in tow to find Ron Sr. and Louise, along with children Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John, all dead in their home. What happened that night has been the center of debate for decades, in part because Butch's story changed repeatedly. When police initially arrived at the gruesome scene, they tried to make sense of Butch's ramblings. He's erratic, he's all over the place. And he offers up a whole bunch of tangential information without prompting. For example, that he has and had had a struggle with drugs and alcohol. I think he said that he was at the moment whacked out an acid or had been earlier in the day, that he had other run-ins with the law. It was like this just very unhinged monologue. And police sort of don't take him seriously. They're just kind of like, oh, okay, buddy, we'll go sleep it off. And they literally let him go take a nap in the file room. Soon, though, the evidence at the DeFeo house began to cause alarm. And they find a box for a brand new 35 Marlin rifle, which 
they have determined is the weapon used in the killings. And it's in Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s bedroom. So it's in that moment that they're like, wait a minute, maybe he did do this. Maybe the unhinged guy who said that he's tripping out and has had a lot of run-ins with the law actually did this thing. So they started questioning Butch. He has a, a very strange story. He says, it started so fast, and once, it, once I started, I couldn't stop. And he confesses to massacring his entire family. His lawyer tries to plead insanity, but it doesn't work, because pleading insanity means that you've literally lost your reasoning power, which is not what happened. The lawyer really did try, though. As mentioned earlier, several friends and family members testified about Big Ronnie's alleged abuse. The story they presented seemed to suggest that anyone in Butch's position might snap and do something horrific. But then Butch testified in his own defense, and that didn't go so well. Then he gets up on to the stand, and he says, Did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. As far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense, and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. So at this point, I'm sure his attorney was like, oops, I probably shouldn't have let him get up on the stand. Jurors apparently thought the same. Butch was sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life in prison. And that could have been the end of it. But once he's in jail, he decides to change his story many times over the years. And this has only added to the mystery of the Amityville horror ever since. In the years after the DeFeo family murders, Butch told several versions of what happened that night, some in which he claimed to have acted alone, while others had a different twist. One even included his sister Dawn. At one point, he claims that his sister was in on it and that they, were, they killed their father because of the abuse. And that the plan was to kill the parents and take the children, their brothers and sisters, somewhere safe and I guess just sort of live happily ever after. Now, this version actually seems feasible because, in fact, there were elements of it corroborated by physical evidence. Specifically, in this version, there were two guns involved in the shooting because a family friend named Bobby was going to help Butch and Don pull off the patricide. Butch told police that the second gun had been tossed in a tributary, and later investigators indeed found a gun matching that one in the vicinity Butch had indicated. If this version of events is true, this is what would have happened when Butch arrived that fateful night to his folks' house after being summoned by his mother. He would have arrived to find a madhouse with Big Ronnie beating Louise in their bedroom. Brother John was sprawled in the foyer, blood on his face. Mark and Allison were hiding in their rooms. Dawn was also in her room yelling down to antagonize Big Ronnie. When he saw Butch, Big Ronnie gave chase, only to trip over a pile of clothes and hurt his foot. The threat neutralized, Butch tried to make sense of the situation. Checking on his siblings, he asked his little sister Allison, whom he considered his favorite, if she wanted to come back to New Jersey with him, but she told him she had too much homework. 
The initial plan, per one theory laid out in Rick Osuna's book, was that Don, Butch, and Bobby struggled over whether to kill both Big Ronnie and Louise or just Big Ronnie. Don supposedly was in favor of killing Dad alone, but Butch felt Louise had lost her free will and did whatever her husband wanted. Butch also worried that if they only killed their father, Louise may try to use her father's mafia connections to seek revenge on her own children. So Butch wanted both parents killed in a manner that made it look like they died in a botched robbery. Dawn supposedly agreed with this plan and assured Butch that she would safely transport the other children to their grandparents' house in Brooklyn after they were finished with their parents. But when the time came to pull the trigger, Butch maybe hesitated, Asuna posited. Angered, Dawn, quote, grabbed the gun from him, and without a second thought, she raised the rifle and took aim at her father's illuminated form, end quote. Butch grabbed the gun from his sister, but before he could re-aim, Louise had woken and screamed, Oh my God, Ronnie! Butch pulled the trigger, shooting his mother. Believing it was all over, Bobby, the friend aiding in this mayhem, dropped a flashlight on a chair in the hallway and started backing away. Except it wasn't over. Big Ronnie wasn't dead. Having been shot in the back, his movement was limited, but he managed to actually pull himself up. Big Ronnie supposedly charged his attackers, hunched like a bull. Butch fired again at his father. Shockingly, Louise had also survived and was moaning in bed. Bobby pulled out the second gun and supposedly fired to put her out of her misery. So now Big Ronnie and Louise were dead. Dawn, quote, ran happily to her room like a schoolgirl who had just been kissed for the first time, end quote. According to Butch, Bobby lost it. He ran downstairs and out the front door. Quote, he stopped in the front yard and started puking his guts out, end quote. Butch walked downstairs in his white socks to find Bobby as they had to start cleaning up the crime scene. Walking by a clock that read 1.05 a.m., he stepped outside to see another accomplice, a friend named Doggy, in his car, but no Bobby. Cursing, Butch put his boots on and walked down Ocean Avenue to find his co-conspirator. He hadn't gotten very far before Augie screeched to a stop behind him, angry and agitated. He told Butch that Dawn was stoned and acting like an idiot. She had pointed a gun at Augie's head and even fired it into the car. This was enough to send Augie home. They were now down two co-conspirators, with Bobby and Augie both fleeing. Butch returned to the house, his attention focused on formulating an alibi and retaking control of the situation. Taking a moment, he knew he had to get Big Ronnie back into bed to be able to sell the story that his parents died in a botched robbery. But Big Ronnie weighed 270 pounds, and even without rigor mortis, Butch couldn't move the body by himself. He had no choice but to find Bobby. First, he checked on his siblings, telling the younger ones that their parents were hurt and they were waiting for an ambulance. Mark, dealing with unresolved anger issues, lashed out at Butch, and Dawn, stoned, had turned her stereo on and was singing along at the top of her lungs. Butch recalled, quote, Now picture this. The old man is lying dead in the hallway. My mother is dead in her bed. Mark is trying to beat me with his crutch. John is whimpering and crying. And Dawn is up there screeching at the top of her lungs with her music, end quote. 
Butch described Dawn as laughing, singing, and dancing in her room, carrying on like a madwoman. Giddy, Dawn grabbed the phone, saying she wanted to call her boyfriend in Florida and tell him everything that had just happened. Shocked, Butch said he knocked the receiver out of her hand, yelling, What are you, stupid? What the hell did you take? Telling her she better sober up, he went to take a quick shower, needing to change out of his bloody clothes. When he returned, Dawn was still manic and once again had the phone in her hand and was dialing. Butch knocked it to the floor again, telling her to snap out of it, take care of the kids. Dawn's reply, yeah, 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 I will. Leaving his sister staring into space, Butch grabbed a pillowcase full of his bloody clothes, taking it to the basement to start a load of laundry. He checked on his siblings one last time before heading back out into the night to try to find Bobby again. Eventually, the two did reconnect. It was nearly 4 a.m. when they returned to 112 Ocean Avenue. According to the night the DeFeos died, the house smelled of coffee grounds and death, and every light in the house was on. When Butch went inside, Dawn called out to ask, Butch, is that you? Looking up, he responded by asking why she was still there. She was supposed to be driving the kids to Brooklyn. His instincts had him starting toward Allison's room, only for Bobby to take off running and go out the front door. Undaunted, Butch continued to Allison's room and later said he was, quote, sickened by the sight. It felt like my stomach flip-flopped a couple of times and I just about died, end quote. What Butch found was his favorite sibling lying face down in her bed, a fatal gunshot wound to her head, blood dripping onto her white shag carpet. Just knowing his brothers had suffered the same fate He stormed into Dawn's room only to immediately stub his toe on his hunting rifle, the same gun he had used to shoot his parents. Butch told Osuna what happened next. Quote, As I bent down to pick up the rifle, Dawn popped off her bed and charged at me. We were both screaming. I was so angry I wanted to throw her out the window, but thought maybe her butt was too big to fit through it. I lambasted Dawn and she flopped across the room. Her head struck her bedpost, and she was knocked unconscious. As she lay there, catty corner from her headboard, I watched her eye grow bloody and her nose begin to puff up. I remember thinking she was going to wake up and kill me, so I picked up the rifle and fired it. I don't know where the bullet hit. It could have hit the front or the back of her neck, but the blood splattered everywhere. End quote. Now alone in the house full of his dead family members, Butch took another shower and began another load of laundry. Dressing for work in the clean clothes from the dryer, he went straight to Brooklyn. Stopping at a luncheonette near the dealership, he made sure to start a conversation with a patron, sprinkling in details of his fabricated alibi. He and Bobby had spent the night playing pool and watching a war movie. He also included the salacious detail that Dawn had started yet another argument over going to Florida, even saying that she had, quote, threatened to kill everybody in the house if she was not allowed to leave soon, end quote. Butch and Bobby, his accomplice, didn't finish staging the scene until Butch completed his day's planned work shift. He had started at 7 a.m. and finished around 2.30 in the afternoon. After that, he and Bobby headed back to 112 Ocean Avenue. As part of the staging, they supposedly cleaned up all signs of struggle to bolster the notion that the whole family had died in their sleep 
the victims of a murderous robber. Butch said the duo also hid ledgers belonging to Big Ronnie that detailed the entire dealership operation, from racketeering to money laundering and body disposal. The books had been stored behind loose panels in the basement until Butch and Bobby supposedly burned them in the woods and scattered the ashes and water. Finishing up, they went outside, sitting in silence, and realized they had to come up with a plausible plan. They decided to get their hands on some drugs because they had heard they couldn't be held accountable for crimes committed while they were high. They agreed to meet up later at Henry's bar to continue their ruse. Butch gathered anything he thought might indicate his guilt, boxes of ammunition and the yellow towel he had used after his many showers, but he forgot the storage box for his hunting rifle. He said he drove around, finally getting back to Amityville between 5 and 5.30 p.m., after which he drove to get heroin before heading to Harry's bar for a Coke. He made a show of leaving around 6.30 p.m. by loudly announcing that he didn't have a key to his parents' house, and then he left the bar to set off and discover his gruesomely slain family. Butch DeFeo was convicted in 1977 of the slayings, but of course, that was not the end of the tale centered around 112 Ocean Avenue. We'll explore the rest of the story in next week's episode. To research this case, Jen Erdman relied on several books, including Jackie Barrett's The Devil I Know, My Haunting Journey with Ronnie DeFeo and the True Story of the Amityville Horrors, and Rick Osuna's The Night the DeFeos Died, Reinvestigating the Amityville Murders. We also both dug into newspaper archives. Special thanks to fellow podcaster Daisy Egan, who not only hosts the podcast Strange and Unexplained, go find and follow that show wherever you listen to podcasts, but is also my partner on Grab Bag Collab, a Patreon-based podcast collective where you can get at least four separate ad-free shows for just $5 a month. Join us at patreon.com slash grabbagcollab if you would be so kind. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 